0: We are, of course, continuing in Second Samuel, and so if you've brought your Bibles, you can open up to Second Samuel chapter 11. But last week, we left off with Israel's armies enjoying victory over both the Ammonites and and the Syrians, sort of the tail end of what started back in chapters uh, 8 and 9. The Syrians, they were hired as mercenaries by the Ammonites, who once the battle began, they actually fled and retreated back into their city. Now, the Syrians, whose you know, really, it wasn't their fight originally. They were just kind of there for the money. They regrouped and decided, well, if we're running from Israel now, we're going to be running for them from them forever, and eventually they're going to beat us, so let's make a stand. Let's fight against them. At least we become their servants. And so they fought against them, and they lost and became their servants anyway. So they negotiated terms of surrender and... uh uh, Israel won the day. Well, the Ammonites who had started the whole thing, remember, and and melted back into their city. Well, with their young king, you might remember, um, the the war began because Hanun, their young king, whose father Nahash had died, David had sent him condolences, expressing uh, his sorrow over his father's passing, and he didn't believe David's intentions and uh, insulted him in a pretty radical way. Well, that started the whole thing. Verse 14, after they'd retreated, we read in chapter 10, so David Joab, excuse me, returned from the people of Ammon and went to Jerusalem. So the very ones that Israel went to war with to begin with, that war is paused. Syria's done with, the Ammonites are back in their city, and you might say Israel is waiting for a more opportune moment, which has now come in chapter 11. The, the war with the Ammonites... Uh, Through part of today's story, it's not the most important struggle that we're going to be looking at. That fight is actually found within King David himself, who rather than going with the armies to fight the Ammonites, stays at home at the palace. David was idle when he should have been active, resting when he should have been fighting. And it'll cost him and his family, as well as the nation, dearly. David, certainly an imperfect man, has been for us in large part up until this moment an example of faith in God, uh, leadership and humility, a man after God's own heart. Here in chapter 11, he departs. He gets sloppy, you might say. This season in David's life, it's a warning To All of us today as we look at 2nd Samuel chapter 11 our message is titled take heed where you stand and and we derive that from Paul's letter to the Corinthians his first letter chapter 10 verse 12. He writes therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall no temptation. He goes on, has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. What's the greatest danger? What puts you and I most at risk in our walk of faith? Well, as we just read, I think it's thinking that we could never fall that it could never happen to us. Be careful with that attitude as Paul says that a fall is not far behind. Humility is the best guard against stumbling. David will find in his success and achievement compromised, which in combination with temptation resulted in grave sin. We have a lot of misconceptions about the temptations, the pressures, and the trials that we endure, that that we bear up under. We imagine and tell ourselves that our situation is exceptional. And I would venture to say that every single one of us have been up against something where we've played out that line in our minds that, that no one else understands. No one else has been through this or experienced it. I'm, I'm the exception. And for that reason, we excuse and we justify our disobedience. But Paul here writes that the temptation that we encounter, the pressure and the circumstances, they're actually common to man. There's almost 8 billion people On the planet today, you and I are not the only ones. The the promise in this chapter is that God will provide a way of escape, preventing us from having to give up or give in. That is a promise. He always will. Our problem is having the patience, the faith, the discernment, and the discipline to take that way when God provides it. Well, this morning, we're going to begin by looking at the first five verses. Let's pray, and we'll see where things are going. Father, as we open your word this morning, as we examine it once again, the life of David, God, and we look for lessons from that time in our lives today, this morning, God, I pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, would cause the sword of your spirit, God, to... Separate, Father, between fact and fiction in our lives, between what's false and what's real. God, that we would have the sensitivity to respond to conviction. Lord, to receive where you would correct us, where you would bring warning. God, where you would move us closer to your heart. We pray that, Father, you would use your word to bring light, to illuminate our path. God, the path that you want us to be on. Lord, we might be far away from or or straying from or, or tempted to separate ourselves from. God, that you'd bring us back. Father, we pray that you would speak and minister to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in looking at verses 1 through 5, our first point this morning is the danger of staying. Verse 1, we could have also said the danger of straying, but but quite literally it's staying. Verse 1, it happened in the spring of the year at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. Time had passed since the events took place that we studied last week. It's now the spring. And as verse 1 tells us, it's that time when kings go out to war. Evidently a, a season more conducive to being on the battlefield. Not too hot, not rainy, sort of just right. The battle is going well under David's, excuse me, under Joab's leadership. We read that the uh, people of Ammon, they were destroyed And this city, Rabbah, where they were centralized, was besieged. That is uh, east of the Jordan River within the territory of the Ammonites. But David, we read, remained at Jerusalem. He stayed there. He'd sent Joab to lead the armies of Israel. Now, last week we read that he'd done the same thing, that he later joined the fight and led Israel to victory over the Syrians. There can be legitimate reasons for a king to send his generals on his behalf, his commanders in his stead. Some people, some leaders don't know how to rest. They got to be in charge of and in front of and involved in everything. They feel they have to lead and and do that constantly. And and that's not healthy. But there are times when someone staying at home uh, isn't about Rest or delegating. It's about something else. We lose the will to work because we're indulging in the flesh. Structured rest is good. Aimless downtime is dangerous. I remember in high school, I used to complain to my my U.S. history teacher that he would give us too much homework, and he did. He piled it on. And and he would always, with a little gleam in his eye, he would look at me and he'd say, Aaron, free time is the devil's handiwork. And he was right. Often we get ourselves into trouble when we're not busy with healthy things. Sleeping when we should be fighting. In the Garden of Gethsemane, remember Jesus, he warned the disciples Mark fourteen uh, thirty eight. watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus is saying, your, your heart, you don't want to sin, you don't want to stumble, you don't want to go headlong into something you shouldn't, but wanting to is not enough. You've got to exercise the discipline to pray. You, you've got to be committed to those spiritual disciplines that will become the foundation of your future deliverance. Your active dependence on God, abiding in Christ. It's, <clears throat> excuse me. It's when we least want to pray, have you found? It's when we least want to exercise spiritual disciplines that we most need to. Because that's when our enemy attacks, when we're tired and discouraged, unprepared spiritually. He's patient. He waits for those moments. The, the Christian cannot afford the luxury of spiritual laziness because we have an enemy who never rests. Peter cautions us about this very thing in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, he walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. He's looking, he's watching. So, <clears throat> while Israel's armies are fighting the enemy, David is surrendering to his. Verse two, then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful to behold. David was restless. He couldn't sleep. So he decided to take a walk on the palace's rooftop patio where he could view the city. But there below, near enough, to see clearly, maybe lit by candles or torch, uh, was a woman bathing. What could David have done? He could have walked away. He could have sent messengers to insist that the woman better conceal her bathing routine. Uh, he could have called for Nathan or Gad, those men who had been prophets and spiritual leaders in his life. He, he could have invited some accountability. But sadly, this was not a disciplined area in David's life. Though David had been careful about certain aspects of following the law of God, and specifically instructions to kings found in Deuteronomy chapter 17, he'd failed to maintain just one wife. He had several at this point, seven actually, the Bible records up until this moment. But Deuteronomy 17, verse 7 reads, Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, that is the king, lest his heart turn away. That's kind of funny because you can read that and think, well, why would, why would multiple wives cause a man's heart to turn away from God? Lust unchecked will drive a wedge between our heart and God. It'll bring damage and hurt that we never imagined. Alan Redpath, he wrote of this quote, As I think of what happened, speaking of this incident with David, of this I am sure, that it did not happen all at once. This matter of Bathsheba was simply the climax of something that had been going on in his life for 20 years. David added, "Wife." After wife, and and maybe thinking that somehow more wives would satiate his lust, the reality is that when you feed something like that in your life, it doesn't satisfy the desire. It only stirs a craving for more. It's like drinking salt water. It doesn't satisfy. David, he flirted with sin and then became increasingly comfortable with it until he reached the point of boldly crossing lines that he in earlier days would have never considered. And so we find him wandering the palace at night, staring, lusting, leering, and beginning to choose to sin in a way that would bring untold devastation and pain into his life. Where do we wander, you and I? What roofs are we prone to walk on? You're having a hard time in your marriage and you go to the gym during a time and on a day when you figure out there's someone there that you're attracted to. Or you start messaging someone from high school or college sort of innocently, but really looking to see an old flame rekindled. Maybe you struggle with same-sex attraction. You're lonely and you figure a visit to a gay bar or somewhere known to be a popular hangout might help to ease the pain. You're scrolling on the internet and start wandering toward areas where you know you're going to find porn. It doesn't have to be sexual though, does it? You've been clean for six months but decide to hang out near the liquor store where you used to hit up. That person that you know is a bad influence that you've wisely separated yourself from at some point in the past, you decide to text them just to see what's up. Maybe you seek out a friend that's a a bad influence, a gossip, unhealthy or toxic for you. Maybe you make that connection that the Lord by his spirit told you to sever. You're setting yourself up for a fall. Maybe a lot bigger one than you think. David had no idea where this was going to go. He was only focused on the moment. And that's how Satan lures us. He blinds us effectively to the cascading consequences that may come. The devastation, the hurt, the pain that will linger for months and years and decades and possibly beyond our own lives even. Because Satan never shows his hand If he did, he'd scare us away. (laughs) He lures us, tempts us, sets the bait, and then traps us. We do well to use our imaginations and, and think them through soberly when tempted to sin. To help encourage us to run. And what I mean by that is when we're tempted to do something, we know we shouldn't stop and think what the devil is not sharing with us What all could happen if I engage in this behavior, if I choose to do this? What could happen down the road? How could this fully uh, engulf my life? How could it harm and bring devastation and unravel blessings that God has brought to me? Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.22, Flee also youthful lusts, run like Joseph We need to have the presence of mind, the will, and the resolve when faced with temptation to run. And if I haven't made it clear already, this morning's message is not just about sexual sin. It is about that sin with which you struggle. It's it's about that thing in your life that you have excused. That thing that the Spirit of God has tried and is still desiring to see you liberated from it's robbing you of spiritual power it's grieving the spirit of god and and its impact is only going to grow i like this quote from mark twain he writes there are several good protections against temptation but the surest is cowardice don't be afraid to be afraid of what you are tempted by of sin be afraid of it that's wise And run from it. Verse 2 again. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful to behold. It's been said. I'm sure you've heard this many of you. You can't stop birds from flying over your head. But you can keep them from building a nest. The problem is not an initial glance. Noticing something. Being tempted or having the possibility cross your mind. That's not sin yet. What you do with it, though, can be and can become that. When it translates into lust, that's where the problem begins, an action. James traces this process in our minds. It's almost a, a birthing, almost a, a from, from conception to birth, you might say, temptation to sin. James 1 verse 14, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and is enticed Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Verse 3, so David sent and inquired about the woman, and someone said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? Here David had an opportunity to stop, didn't he? He asked the questions, he inquired, well, who is that? David, she's not single, never mind the fact that you got seven wives, but she's off the market, she's married, beyond that, Eliam Bathsheba's father was one of David's mighty men, as was her own husband, Uriah, she was also the granddaughter of Ahithophel, a trusted advisor, this was, some, this was a, a, a group that David was intimately connected with. Not that, not that if she was more anonymous that somehow it would have been better, but the very fact that there were all those connections should have been and was God trying to say to David, stop, you are going to impact far more people than you think, David. Verse 4, yet he persisted in the face of that roadblock, which God is faithful to provide, isn't he? Haven't you found that to be the case that, that the Lord, he puts those those Caution signs in front of us. He won't force us, but he'll give us the opportunity to slow down and stop. Verse 4, David blows past it. Then David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her, for she was cleansed from her impurity, and she returned to her house. She just completed a religious rite by which she would be made ceremonially clean from her menstrual cycle In other words, as of this moment, she is not pregnant, which is very likely why this detail is included. Her husband has been gone for a lengthy period of time. She's just gone through the natural phase of things, validating the reality that she is not with child. Uh, And after she's been with David, she returns home. And in verse 5, and the woman conceived. So she sent and told David and said, I am with child. A lot of times we'll characterize our sin as a mistake. We'll downplay it. I stumbled. And while that may well be true, that, that may be an, an aspect of it, the reality is that more often than not, we sin because we wanted to. We just don't like to say that outright. We enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. This was premeditated on David's part. He looked, he lusted, he summoned her, and he lay with her. And I know verse 4, there's a a forcefulness to it because this was King David, but there are other passages in Scripture that describe uh, situations where women were legitimately forced against their will to be with someone. That's not the case here based on the language and other descriptors that are present and in context. It simply means that he went, summoned her, My guess would be they probably spent some time together, and then it proceeded into uh, what ultimately culminated in having sexual relations. Sometime later, at least a month or two, she sent and told David and said, I'm with child, I'm pregnant, and I wasn't before I slept with you, David. My husband's been gone this whole time, you are the father. Maybe some of you have had a similar conversation or received a phone call or a note or a text like that. That would be sobering. According to the law, this was very serious. Bathsheba knew it and David knew it. Leviticus 20 verse 10, the man who commits adultery with another man's wife, he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Bathsheba is probably panicking. She's pressing David for a solution. If they're discovered, this could mean the death penalty for both of them. David has a mess to cover up. Maybe he could have gotten away with sleeping with Bathsheba, but now she's pregnant. So he's going to arrange to bring her husband Uriah home from the battle. If he can get him to sleep with her even once, then all will be well. The child will be his Rather than come clean and repent, David is going to further complicate his sin with lies. And that always makes the situation worse, doesn't it? So let's read further to see how that goes. The folly of a cover-up, verse 6. Then David said to Joab, saying, excuse me, he sent. He sent a messenger with a note to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah had come to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war prospered. David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah departed from the king's house and a gift of food From the king followed him. Little Harry in David's basket with a bottle of wine or something. David says, while you're here, you know, he's he's come up under the pretense of maybe bringing intelligence from the front lines. Why don't you take a gift down to your house and and enjoy yourself? You've, you know, been so good to bring me an update. Verse 9, but Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go to his house. So King David, without any real legitimate reason, calls for Uriah to return from the battle and uh, uses it as a ruse to get an update on how things have gone. Uriah probably was scratching his head a little bit, wondering why the king had asked him to return and was then asking him these questions, and of course the point was to encourage him to stay, that he would be able to spend time with his wife and that they would sleep together. If Uriah did that, the pregnancy would then be covered up as his own child and all would be well. But as we read, despite being encouraged by the king to return home with gifts, Uriah wouldn't. Being so loyal and knowing the rest of the men were sleeping outside and still in the middle of a war, he slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of the Lord. Uriah is a man of principle and discipline. Very unlike David at this moment. His loyalty had to be convicting to the king. I'm sure a little irritating, but also convicting. Verse 10, so when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Uriah, did you not come from a journey? Why did you not go to your own house? <laughs> At some point here, he's got to be like, okay, can you just kind of back up a little bit here, David? This is, you're, you're getting up in my business. This is kind of, you know, like the intimacy between my wife and I, but verse 11, and Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. David tries to appeal to Uriah as a man. Brother, haven't you been away from your wife for a, a long time fighting? Why don't you enjoy this time with her? Yet Uriah, he reiterates that he just can't in good conscience. My, my, my brother's in war. They're, they're out fighting. They're not with their wives and they're, they're not living in their, in their homes, sleeping in their bed. They're out in the open field. He would choose to exercise self-control and wait. That must have yet further struck David's conscience. He who hadn't even gone to the battle himself, who'd taken advantage of Uriah being away from home, had used his power and influence to persuade his wife Bathsheba to be unfaithful to him. Verse 12, then David said to Uriah, wait here today also, and tomorrow I will let you depart. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. David's buying more time. Verse 13, now when David called him, he ate and drank before him, and he made him drunk. And at evening, he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. Uriah has more self-control and discipline drunk than David did sober. One more time, David, he tries to set up the scenario by which Uriah will sleep with his wife, and again, he fails. He's simply a man of integrity, and rather than act selfishly, uh, he chooses to sleep again with David's servants. David is desperate. His foolproof plan to uh, cover this cleanly has failed. He's going to have to get his hands dirty. Verse 14, in the morning, it happened that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in the letter saying, set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retreat from him that he may be struck down and die. So faithful was Uriah that David knew he could place the very letter ordering his own execution in his hand. And David trusted he wouldn't open it and read it. What David could not accomplish through trickery and, and appealing to this man's flesh, he'll now get done through manipulating his murder on the battlefield. If he can't make it look like the child belonged to Uriah, he's going to have the man killed. What has happened to David, the, the sweet psalmist of Israel, the man after God's own heart? It's crazy but it's what happens when you start down this road of deception. Lies compound on top of more lies. You're backtracking, sneaking, and lying. And this is what God meant about multiplying wives, turning a man's heart from him. You see how this lust in David's life, it it opened up a door by which he didn't just drift but moved rapidly away from the Lord. Our lusts and our sin, they'll drive us to manipulate people to do what we need them to do in order to cover up our sin. But if that doesn't work, you get more desperate and suddenly you're willing to do things that you would never consider doing normally. It's been said that sin will cost you more than you wanted to pay. It'll take you farther than you wanted to go, and it'll keep you longer than you wanted to stay. And I know many of you can testify to how true that is. Well, finally, in looking at verses 16 through 27, we find that the king has set in motion a terrible plan and so obsessed with cons- covering that is, rather than. Owning his guilt, he's about to make things far worse. Deceiving men and grieving God is our final point. Verse 16. So it was while David besieged the city that he assigned Uriah to a place where he knew there were valiant men, that is, on the side of the Ammonites, where he knew the battle would be especially dangerous. Then the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. And some of the people of the servants of David fell. And Uriah the Hittite died also. Then Joab sent and told David all the things concerning the war and charged the messenger saying, when you have finished telling the matters of the war to the king, if it happens that the king's wrath rises and he says to you, why did you approach so near to the city when you fought? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? It's like Joab knows David's mind and and that he would be analyzing the strategy and, and be critical of this unnecessary failure. Who who struck Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Joab saying he's probably going to reference some battle from our history, and Joab gives an example from Judges chapter 9. Was it not a woman who cast a millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Joab says if if he talks about how dangerous it is to fight a war and come right up to the walls of an enemy, which he may well do, and ask, why did you go near the wall? Make sure you say this. Your servant, Uriah the Hittite, is dead also. So that David would then stop and go, oh. Joab sends this word by the messenger. This plan conceived by David required not this this, that Uriah would lose his life, but multiple soldiers were with him pressed up close to this dangerous place. David was responsible for their lives being lost as well as Uriah's. Verses 22 through 25. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent by him. And the messenger said to David, Surely the men prevailed against us and came out to us in the field. Then we drove them back as far as the entrance of the gate. The archers shot from the wall at your servants, and some of the king's servants are dead. And your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Then David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it. So encouraged him. Wow. David replies to this messenger, Well, Joab, these things happen. Don't feel bad. Men die in war after all. Keep a stiff upper lip and let's finish the job. That's David's... Response. He's kind of wiping his brow, going, That was a close one. Got a little messier than I thought it would have to, but at least that's dealt with. Verse 26. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. Verse 27. And when her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. It's so Bathsheba learns that her husband is dead and she grieves for him, even though she's probably a little bit relieved or a lot. David also is relieved but burdened by guilt because shame is not so easily removed. It, it covered and would all but suffocate both of them in the coming months. They knew that however well they covered this secret of their relationship and this child, God knew. We'll deal with that more next week. David then waited some amount of time. We're not told how long, but he brought her into his home as his own bride, his eighth wife. Maybe because some knew that Uriah had been home recently and stayed for a few days, they would assume that she was pregnant with his child. David would actually now appear the hero. Uriah has died on the battlefield and the king understanding that this pregnant widow has been left behind has brought her into his household. Verse 27, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And that displeasure would take from David any peace and leave him wrestling under a weight of condemnation. He'd write of this time in Psalm 32, verse 3 When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. When you and I, rather than repent and confess our sin, when we try to cover it up with lies, we experience this, the, the, that heavy hand of God's spirit bringing conviction, which is meant to drive us to the cross. When we run away from the Lord, it devolves into condemnation because we're hopeless and we're simply overwhelmed by guilt that we don't know what to do with. Until we come clean before the Lord and others that we might be cleansed. Until that time, we, we walk this dark path of isolation and guilt. David's choices, his path that leads to this chapter in his life, are a warning to you and I that we would take heed to ourselves, to pay attention to our lives lest we fall. Temptation, it's common to all of us. Stumbling and falling, though, don't have to be. God promises to provide a way of escape. The question is, will we take it? Will we grab hold of the opportunity that God gives us? When when our conscience is pricked to to say, no, 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 don't don't take that off-ramp. Keep driving. Don't respond to that. Don't unblock that number don't go back to that place. Don't reconnect with that person. Don't expose yourself again to that material, to that substance. We have that moment to choose. Should I pick up the phone and call somebody who can pray for me? It's, it's a this night of the week. I know there's something happening that's positive, that, that, that's spiritual. I should go there. I I should just go and knock on the person's front door that I know can help me. I've told people that before. (laughs) I've said, I would rather you just come to my house and knock on the door and say, Aaron, would you pray for me than do that thing again? We we need to have that kind of a desperation that's willing to take the way of escape instead of coming up for excuses and explaining it away and say, well, I had no choice. There's always a choice. We say, well, it just, it was more than I could handle. Well, that, that's why 1 Corinthians 10 says everything that it does. We mistakenly sometimes will, will say, well, God won't give you more than he can handle. Yes, he will. He will allow more than you can handle. It happens all the time. We're, we're supposed to depend on the Lord. We can't handle any of it. I, I encounter tons of things where I go, Lord, I cannot handle this. But he said, I'll provide a way of escape. Of course you can't. It's too much. You've got to depend on me. You, you've got to you've got to flee temptation. You you've got to rather than be overwhelmed by stress and anxiety, you've got to be anxious for nothing, but in all things by prayer and supplication. You got to seek me. You got to pray so that you can experience the peace of God that passes understanding. The best way to ensure success. Stay close to the Lord. Stay close to Jesus. And those areas in our lives where we know God has said no, we we need to walk away from those. We need to repent. We need to remove them. We need to allow the Lord to, to bring about a godly remodeling in our lives. Because like David, that sin will we'll, we'll be like a, a wedge between us and the Lord that will widen further over time. Like David, the, the thing that you're allowing for today, it, there's no indication of how bad it could get. David with the second wife, the third wife, the do you think he ever thought this is going to result in me committing murder? Of course not. They're, they're my wives. This is just about the bedroom. This is just about sex, he might say. And yet for David, it led to multiple soldiers' death, Uriah's death, the death of a child. It brought destruction to the nation, and it would impact his son, who would become the leader of the next Season in Israel's life as a nation, who would have not eight wives, but hundreds, and who would be party to helping to introduce idolatry into Israel as a nation, which would plague them for nearly 400 years and result in their having to be led in exile to Babylon, would would cause the fall of an entire people. One choice. We need to take seriously the sin that God, by his spirit, would say, stop, let go of it, and embrace me, and trust me for the way of escape. I love this challenge from John in his first letter, 1 John 1, verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light... We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. As dark as this chapter is, and, and when we get to chapter 12, there's hope there. As we were worshiping this morning, I thought, you know, 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12, they're a little bit like Romans 7 and 8. I think it was Charles Spurgeon who said that, that when we're in Romans 7, we need to flee to the, to the 8th chapter, where there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and we'll get there. That's when we find David finally coming back into the light. In the light is where we find grace and strength to walk nearest to our Lord. There is the power to resist temptation and sin. In that place, we have both the awareness and the strength to take the way of escape that the Father so mercifully provides. And he always does. I appreciate these words from that 19th century preacher, Charles Spurgeon. He wrote, what settings are in you? Excuse me, what settings are you in when you fall? What settings, what surroundings are you in when you fall? Avoid them. What props do you have that support your sin? Eliminate them. What people are you usually with? Avoid them. There are two equally damning lies Satan wants us to believe. First, just once won't hurt. And number two, now that you have ruined your life, you are beyond God's use and you might as well enjoy sinning. Maybe today you're struggling with the second lie. You've ruined your life or brought some measure of ruin. And there's no sense in trying anymore. Just go deeper. Or at least Satan has tried to convince you of that. There's no hope of restoration. You're beyond hope. The good news today is that though we may have stumbled and fallen, forgiveness and healing can be ours. Philippians chapter 3, verse 13 reminds us that we are to forget those things which are behind and press forward to those things which are ahead, to the upward calling of God in Christ Jesus. If you missed the message, the first in our You Can Ask That series, we spent a lot of time a couple of weeks back talking about what sin God can and cannot forgive. And from the heart of his children, there's no sin he can't forgive. The blood of Jesus is able to cleanse a man or a woman from all sin challenge for you and I is that we would not stay outside of the grace of God, but that we would avail ourselves of his mercy, that we would draw near to the throne of grace. That we might find cleansing and be made whole. This morning, we're celebrating communion. And in a moment, we'll take that. Maybe Pastor Frankie and the worship team you can come up and help us prepare to Receive the Lord's Supper. In a message like this, uh, no doubt there are many of us here this morning that are convicted on different levels of things that we need to deal with before the Lord. The temptation would be, uh, A, I certainly can't take communion, and B, how could God ever forgive me? I'm just going to kind of slip back out the same way I came in. I'm going to keep that distance between god and i don't the heart of god is that you and i would experience the same restoration that the apostle peter experienced think think about the trajectory of that disciple so proud, so strong in what he thought he knew. Jesus mercifully had to tell him, Peter, before the cock crows three times, or before the cock crows, you'll deny me three times. But what I love about that is in the very next chapter, 14, Jesus, he tells them all. He says, don't, don't let your heart be discouraged. Believe in, you believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. Peter, you're going to fail, but that doesn't mean you're not my child. It doesn't mean you're not my son. And the Lord would seek him out later. The last two chapters of John are probably my favorite in the whole Bible when Jesus seeks Peter out specifically as is referenced in the other Gospels. And he tells him, do you love me? Feed my sheep. And there's a whole series of messages there. But the bottom line was the the issue wasn't, I mean, certainly Peter's sin was an issue. But it was, are are you going to stay away from me or are you going to draw near to me? Are you in your pride going to continue to insist that you've got everything under control or will you finally now admit that you are in fact desperate for the grace of God? A lot of us, we come into the kingdom of God that way, but then we continue thinking, our need somehow lessens. This morning, avail yourself of the grace of God. Receive the forgiveness that Jesus freely extends and wants to offer. That times of refreshing might come, that your soul in the presence of the Lord might be healed and relieved.